Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Welcome back to our brief history of Zionism in the state of Israel. And in this segment, we're going to really bring ourselves almost completely up to date so far, at least, on the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians and various attempts to try to negotiate some sort of solution. And I want to cover two presidents in this particular segment. One is Barack Obama and the other is Donald Trump. Barack Obama is a very controversial president in Israel, for reasons that we'll come back to in a second. A person who I personally actually think did not have Israel's detriment in mind at all, but didn't understand this region nearly as well as he ought to, given how smart that he is. And one of the first things that Obama does when he becomes president is that he goes to Cairo. He goes to Cairo and he speaks to the Egyptian parliament, and among the things that he says is that Israel was created as a result of the Holocaust. And Israelis heard that and they said, this guy who was so unbelievably smart got that wrong? Israel was created as a result of the Holocaust? The first Zionist Congress in 1897 was because of the Holocaust? The Balfour Declaration in 1917 was because of the Holocaust? The hundreds of thousands of Jews who moved to Palestine in 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930, was because of the Holocaust. What are you talking about? Because the minute that you say Israel was created because of the Holocaust, what you're saying is the Jews fled Europe and they landed in your backyard. You're saying, I understand how painful this is for you. And it's not your fault. It's, it's Europe's fault, which in a certain way, of course, it is, but not in the Holocaust in the, in the end of the 1800s. So he gets off to a very bad start with Israelis who are always trying to assess this new American leader. Where does he, hopefully one day he or she, but so far, where does he stand on these kinds of issues? He makes some other mistakes, but he also makes it clear that he has Israel's interests at heart. He tries to warm up to Israeli crowds. He does come to Israel. He speaks to Israeli students. He does a lot of things right, but things are really going to go south between Obama and Israel in the, in the 2014 war between Israel and Hamas, called in Hebrew Tzuk Eitan, which in English means more or less protective edge. In the summer of 2014, Hamas kidnapped three Israeli teenagers who were hiking in a suburb just south of Jerusalem, but over the Green Line. It was technically in the territories, but in an area that we go to all the time, it's you really don't really realize that you're leaving Jerusalem that much. It wasn't out in the boonies in the hills of the West Bank. It was really in Gush Etzion, which is very close to Jerusalem. They kidnapped three Israeli teenagers who were hitchhiking. Hitchhiking is a very common thing here in Israel. It takes Israel a few days to find them, but we found out that they were killed almost instantaneously the minute that they were kidnapped. 
In the process of looking for these three boys and the people who kidnapped them, uh, Israel goes into all sorts of Arab towns, Hebron, Bethlehem, other kinds of towns, and it turns up every kind of thing that it can look. It looks in cellars, it looks in houses, and these kinds of searches are very invasive, and they arouse the fury of Arabs, understandably, right? If, people, if soldiers come into your house and they start looking high and low and overturning the furniture and looking for weapons and this and that, you're not going to like it. Uh, and Arabs didn't like it then either. And this was one of those cases where tit and tat kind of each got harder and harder and harder. And eventually there's a little bit of rocket uh, fire from Gaza on Israel. Israel responds. There's more rocket fire from Israel. Israel responds more. And before you know it, we are in the summer of 2014 in a very real war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, the Palestinians are going to pay a huge price for this war in Gaza. Uh, there are going to be 2,000 Palestinians killed and 10,000 Palestinians wounded. Uh, Hamas is going to fire some 4,500 rockets at Israel. 4,500 rockets are going to be fired at Israel. By this time, Israel has Iron Dome, so most of them will be shot down. Uh, but not all of them, and Israelis will be killed, both from the rockets themselves and often from the shrapnel of the rockets once Iron Dome hits it. Uh, Israel is in terror the entire time. It's also clear to Israelis, by the way, that they don't know when or if Hezbollah in the north, which has rockets that can hit every single part of Israel, will unleash its arsenal also. So even if you're not within range of those rockets, you're very, very nervous because you don't know when the rockets are going to start flying from Lebanon. At the end of, which is real, of what is really a, a brutal war, a painful war for everybody involved, but we should be very clear, the Palestinians in Gaza pay a huge price. Hamas has built lots of its military establishments under hospitals, under schools. They've built the entrance to these tunnels in civilian neighborhoods. Israel at a certain point does the very best that it can to try to warn civilians to get out, but it is going to bomb whatever arsenals it can find. It is going to try to take out the weaponry that it can find. And Palestinians pay a horrible human cost in 2014, which Israelis were very, very upset about. Some Israelis felt Israel went too far. Some Israelis felt that it was horrible, painful on the human level, but Israel really had no choice. Like in every conversation in any country about any war, there are conversations about that. Uh, but John Kerry, who's then the Secretary of State, tries to negotiate a truce uh, between Israel and Hamas after Hamas has been pummeled by the Israeli Air Force. And the deal that John Kerry comes up with, at least in its first draft, does not require Hamas to dismantle its rocket arsenal. It does not require Hamas to stop digging tunnels. It gives Hamas the ceasefire that it wants, but it basically says we're going right back to where we were at the beginning of the war. Hamas can have rockets, Hamas can dig tunnels, but we're going to stop fighting at each other now, fighting with each other now. And Israelis are appalled. They say John Kerry is clearly not a friend of Israel. And David Horowitz, who is a leading Israeli journalist, who's the editor-in-chief of Times of Israel, wrote a very, very famous op-ed as soon as John Kerry reveals his deal, so to speak, with Hamas which he calls the betrayal of Israel. And John Kerry is, of course, Barack Obama's Secretary of State. And between what happened in Cairo and between what happens with John Kerry's uh, suggested treaty or truce in 2014, Israelis have just had it.
and Israelis basically don't trust Barack Obama anymore. You can argue correctly, you can argue incorrectly, but after the war in 2014, there's really no more love lost between the Israelis uh, and, the, and the Obama administration. And there's one other piece that has to get mentioned here. Obama says to Netanyahu, you need to have a building freeze in the West Bank, mostly. You need to have a building freeze. No more building. Not any new houses, not any additions to existing houses, certainly no new settlements, a building freeze. And Netanyahu says, that's going to kill me politically. My right flank will abandon me because I'll be seen as having caved into international pressure. And Obama says, that's what you need to do. You need to have a building freeze. Now, you can love Bibi Netanyahu or not love Bibi Netanyahu. It doesn't really matter. You just have to understand that from Netanyahu's point of view, Obama was forcing him into a, a domestically, politically untenable situation, but he does it. He imposes the building freeze, and during that entire freeze, then Obama works frantically with Abbas to try to get him to come to the table, but unsuccessfully. And when the clock on the freeze runs out, Obama says to Netanyahu, I want you to extend the freeze. And then Netanyahu says, take a hike. I'm not extending the freeze. I gave you the freeze at tremendous personal political cost. You couldn't get Abbas to come to the table. You're not going to get Abbas to come to the table this time either. It's not happening. So now you have really the Israelis very frustrated with the Obama administration. You have the Obama administration very frustrated with the Israelis. And now it's going to get even worse because of what's called the JCPOA, which is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, what everybody calls the Iran nuclear deal. Israel, as we said, has long had what's called the Begin Doctrine. Ever since Begin bombed the Iraqi nuclear reactor in Osirak of June 1981, Israel's had a policy. No sworn enemy of the Jewish state is going to be allowed to acquire a weapon of mass destruction, period. Period. And Olmert will take out a Syrian nuclear reactor being built in 2007. And now the question is what to do about Iran. Israel knows that it's going to be much harder to bomb Iran. Iran is on the other side of Iraq, so the flight distances are much harder. It's much easier to get detected. It's much harder to get the airplanes over there. Also, Iran's far from stupid, and they've built their nuclear project way, way, way underground so that normal bombs won't reach it. Uh, and to try to defuse the Iranian situation, Obama decides to get an international group of countries together to support what's called this Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action which essentially limits Iranians' ability to create nuclear progress. We won't go into all of the various details about all of the various centrifuges and how many and what years, but basically it pushes off Iran getting a nuclear bomb for about 10 years. Nobody denies that at the end of the JCPOA that Iran would be able to go ahead and get a nuclear bomb. There's nobody that would deny that, but there were people that felt, well, 10 years is actually a long time in the Middle East and a lot of things can change in 10 years, it's not a bad deal. There were actually Israeli security people, personnel from the Mossad and from the army on both sides. There were people in the army at the very highest ranks who said, it's not a bad idea. It'll at least slow them down. And there are people who said, it's a ridiculous idea. Because obviously, as long as they're under this agreement, we're gonna have to hold back from doing anything to stop their program. And we don't trust them for a single second not to continue developing their nuclear weapon. And we know for a fact, of course, that they were cheating because of all of the information that Israel was eventually able to get. 
And Netanyahu will do something fairly stupid, I think, personally, in March of 2015, but a lot of people disagree with me, which is that he will accept a Republican invitation to go address a joint session of Congress, which is essentially a slap in the face of the Democratic president, uh, because Netanyahu is basically going to go argue against the deal that the Democratic president is trying to push through. Netanyahu had every right to pressure American politicians privately, but there was something about humiliating the American president publicly that many people in Israel and in the American Jewish community felt was going way, way too far, including, by the way, earlier his endorsement of Mitt Romney. People felt that Bibi had been meddling in American politics far too much. Um, he's not successful in getting America not to endorse uh, the Iran Treaty, and the Iran Treaty actually does go forward. So Obama is going to leave office in 2016 with Israelis feeling a number of things. Number one, the world signed a deal with Iran that everybody knows Iran is going to cheat on, and now we really can't do anything about Iran because it's got this arrangement, but we don't trust them for a second. Israelis say we have a sense that the Democratic Party is probably moving in a direction that is really not very good for us. Because this is not the Democratic Party of Bill Clinton. And this was not the administration of Bill Clinton. This was John Kerry who said that we'd have a ceasefire with Hamas, but Hamas could have all the rockets that it wanted. Hamas could keep digging all the tunnels that it wanted. Israelis began to ask themselves, this American ally, actually, where is it headed? How much can we really count on it? And then, of course, 2016 comes Donald Trump into office, and we will obviously not get into all of the issues of American domestic politics and the very, very, very strong feelings that people on both sides of the divide have. But from a narrow perspective, just looking at Israel, what does Donald Trump do for Israel? Well, many people on the right say Donald Trump does things that no other president had been willing to do. Ever since 1995, Congress had passed a law saying that the embassy should be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And if you weren't going to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you as a president had to sign something saying, I am delaying the implementation of that congressional act. In other words, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem wasn't, oh, you know what? Nobody ever thought about this before. I think I'll move the embassy. No, the reality was that if you were Bill Clinton, you had to say, or George Bush I, or George Bush II, or anybody else, you would have to say, I want to move the embassy, or I don't want to move the embassy, but if I'm not going to move it, for whatever reason, I'm going to sign something now which is delaying the implementation of the 1995 congressional decision. Donald Trump says, I'm not going to delay it. I see no reason to delay it. Congress voted on it a long, long time ago, and he implements it, and of course, the embassy gets moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Many, many years earlier, Israel had annexed the Golan Heights, saying no matter what deal we ever make with Syria, that is never, ever going back. Because if you've been on the Golan, you know that standing on the top of the Golan, you can see right into the north of Israel. You can, tanks can come downhill right into the north of Israel. You can fire on the north of Israel. And still today, even with all the technological advances, you have to put boots on the ground if you're going to capture territory. And starting your soldiers at the top of the Golan, as opposed to the bottom of the Syrian side, makes all the difference. Israel had annexed the Golan a long time before. Trump is the first American president to actually recognize Israel's annexation of the Golan. 
And as he had said he would do during the campaign, Trump just ripped up the JCPOA, the agreement with Iran, which of course also freed Iran to now begin to do whatever else it wanted in pursuing a nuclear weapon. But a lot of Israelis and a lot of American Jews, especially on the right, thought that was also a great thing. What a lot of people who looked at this did not understand was that there were a lot of ways in which what Trump was doing was actually endangering Israel. Uh, when Saudi Arabian oil fields were attacked, probably by Iran, and Trump chose not to react because he didn't want to get America involved in any other wars, he was giving Iran a signal. We don't get involved. Now, Iran can read that as we don't get involved in Saudi Arabia, or we don't get involved in any other sorts of attacks. And Israelis were devastated when they saw that the United States did not respond to those Iranian attacks on Saudi oil fields. Now, you have to be more of a sophisticated observer of the Middle East to understand that. But a lot of Israelis who are more sophisticated observers said this Trump is not nearly as good for Israel as a lot of people think. Furthermore, Trump announced that he was pulling all of American troops out of Syria. He didn't want to be in that war either. But what he didn't understand, of course, is that if you pull American troops out of Syria, then there's really nothing that's a buffer between ISIS and Israel, except for a fledgling resistance in Syria. That was also a huge problem for Israel. In the end, not all of those troops got pulled out because the American military brass said, you really can't do that. But Trump didn't really understand the region well enough to decide not to do that. Um, so Israelis who are on the sophisticated side understand that this is a very mixed bag. Yes, the embassy got moved. Yes, the annexation of the Golan got recognized. Yes, the treaty with Iran got ripped up. But you have a president here, they said, who doesn't really give the right messages to all other sorts of other entities like Iran, like ISIS, like Syria, and so forth. And in the end, Israel's actually not going to be any safer this way. But of course, that's a highly, highly divisive issue, both in Israel and among American Jews. But those are the two views that are commonly held. Ever since the campaign in 2015-2016, uh, Trump had been saying that he was going to come up with the deal of the century and that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, was going to come up with a plan uh, to make the ultimate deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now, because Trump has moved the embassy and because Trump has recognized the annexation of the Golan and because Trump has ripped up the Iranian deal, the Palestinians say, this is not an honest broker. We're not going to look at any deal this guy comes up with, no matter what it says. They also know that Trump has a very warm relationship with Bibi Netanyahu, which is a very complicated relationship, much more complicated than people really think. Uh, but on the surface, it looks like Trump and Bibi are sort of buddies. And therefore, the Palestinians say America is no longer an honest broker. Whatever deal these people come up with, it's dead on arrival. We're not even going to look at it. Now, it takes a very long time for the Trump administration to actually roll out this deal. But when they roll out the deal, what they do is roll out a map of what some ultimate Palestinian state might look like. And people will say it was cantonized. There were lots of little areas, you know, this area, that area, but they're kind of interspersed. If you've ever seen a kind of, a, it's a terrible, it's a horrible analogy, but if you've ever seen a kind of a, a, a medical picture where a tumor begins to infiltrate tissue and it's very hard to extract them because both are kind of so intertwined with each other, that's actually what this map looked like. Israelis were very unhappy with it. Israelis especially who are among the settlers, they say, oh my God, we're going to be surrounded by all these Palestinians. 
And the Palestinians are unhappy with it because they say, oh my God, we're going to be surrounded by all these Israelis and we have no contiguous land. One of the things that people don't really understand about this is that a lot of people on both sides of it really hated it. Another piece of it was that the Trump plan said explicitly that this new map of Israeli and Palestinian enclaves intermixed with each other came with a requirement that Israel begin to move towards the establishment of a Palestinian state. And Israel's hard political right, not its crazy political right, just its hard right, its normal hard right, is opposed to the creation of a Palestinian state at all. For the same reason that Menachem Begin was opposed to it in 78 and 79 when he was negotiating with Sadat. They said, you really are going to trust a Palestinian state not to attack Israel after all this time? You're still drinking that Kool-Aid? They say, well, we're not. And there's no way in which, in which the world looks anything like it looks now that we're going to accept the idea of a Palestinian state. And since the Trump plan calls for Israel taking certain territory, which was called annexation loosely, uh, which we'll come back to in a minute, but at the cost of creating a Palestinian state, even some right-wing people in Israel were opposed to the plan. They said, we'd rather not have that annexation or whatever you want to call it if, we, if the price tag is the creation of a Palestinian state. Israelis on the left uh, were opposed because whatever little bit of the left that there is is in favor of getting out of almost all of the West Bank. And Israelis in the middle, which is the hard majority of Israel these days, were opposed mostly, not because they felt that that was land that they wouldn't have eventually. They understand that this annexation idea wasn't, in a lot of ways, at least at the beginning, going to take land that it's clear Israel's not giving back anyway because it's where huge cities have already been built. They said, this is not the time. This is the wrong thing to do at the wrong moment. And an organization like uh, Commanders for Israel's Security, which is several hundred people uh, who were at once at the top echelons of Israel's military services and its security services and its intelligence services, say the annexation idea is not a good idea now because we shouldn't do anything now that will preclude the possibility of eventually reaching the, a deal with the Palestinians. Is there a way of reaching a deal with the Palestinians now, these people say? No. Is there any way we can pull out of the West Bank with a deal with the Palestinians now? No. Are we creating a Palestinian state now? No. But let's not do anything now that will preclude its creation further down the road. So some people in Israel start to say, though, this is really a historic opportunity. That's the language that gets used. Uh, we should take the parts of the land that Trump has said could eventually be part of our map and annex it. The technical term is extend Israeli law and sovereignty to those areas, but it gets called annexation. The American Jewish community, of course, is outraged by this and is totally opposed to it because they say this is going to get in the way of a two-state solution. This is going to kill the ideal of a Palestinian state. Those people who know the history of this region know that the Palestinian state had been dying long, long, long before, and this was just really not killing anything. Uh, but for a lot of reasons, a lot of Israelis were still opposed to it. In the end, at least so far, as of our having this conversation in August of 2020, uh, annexation has simply just sort of faded away, which is precisely what many Americans and many Israelis thought was going to happen. They realized that once Trump came to understand how complex this was, it was going to get buried in the paperwork. And of course, the coronavirus catastrophe all over the world has focused people on that much more than other issues. And in today's Israeli press in August 2020, 
you hardly ever hear annexation talked about any, anymore. It could come roaring back, I suppose. Uh, but if you want to know why did some Israelis favor annexation, they favored it because they said that's the land that we're keeping anyway. In any imaginable scenario in which we give the Palestinians a state, those are the areas that we're actually holding on to no matter what. So why not just call it the way it is and call a spade a spade and annex it? And people on the left said it's going to infuriate the international community. It's going to infuriate American Jews. It's going to throw a match on a tinderbox in the Middle East. There's no point doing it. Let's just leave well enough alone. But I'll just end this by saying that, again, to understand the annexation issue, you need to know about the Peel Partition Plan in 1937, which we've talked about. You need to know about the United Nations Partition Plan in 1947, which we've talked about. You need to remember that in 1967, the Arabs, after their loss in the Six-Day War, said no peace, no recognition, no negotiations. You need to remember that Yasser Arafat walked out of Camp David in 2000. You need to remember that Abbas did not respond to Olmert's initiatives in 2008. This has a very, very, very long history, 80, 90 years, depending on how you count. This didn't come out of nowhere. And I think actually that reasonable minds can differ about the annexation idea. You can make a good argument in favor. You can make a good argument against. But whatever argument you make, it seems to me, has to be based on something much more sophisticated than this will kill the two-state solution and something much more nuanced and understanding about the long, painful series of negotiations that have gone on really ever since the British first proposed dividing the land in 1937. The British proposed dividing the land in 1937, and that idea was rejected by the Arab community and accepted by the Jewish community. Tragically, in the year 2020, we haven't really moved much beyond that. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.